Um, you've been incredibly generous with the time. I was wondering, is it possible to do a little chit-chat about your sort of writing career a bit more generally? Would that be... Do you have time? Are you, sure, okay? yeah, yeah. And, then, and, and maybe just to sort of... Uh, would you mind telling me if you use the bathroom very quickly? No, of course. Is that okay? <laughs> Put myself through. Um, just turn that off and then... There was, in 2012, a kind of 20 years later reunion of journalists in Sarajevo, and uh, I, I spoke to one guy who's uh, gone on to cover a whole series of wars and is now very famous, and I said, you know, I mean, does, does this, it's a big deal here, is it still a big deal with you? And he said, yeah, definitely, it was different from everything else that I covered. Really? Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting, because I can't really compare it to that much else. Um, and it was certainly a big deal for me. Um, but he he reckoned that it still had those elements that were universal, that we're still dealing with in other contexts, about how do you build a society and, and is, is nationalism dangerous and so on and so forth. We might return, return to that. Can, can I just ask, the, the, the sort of vague... <laughs> the vague I, I never quite get around to this in the podcast, but um, the other is to talk to writers and about the way that writing is sort of conducted... Well, how writing has uh, influenced and shaped their, their lives. Writing, in some ways, has taken you across the world from uh, your hometown of Glasgow, Singapore, Japan, uh, Bosnia, Spain. Yep. Yep. Could I ask, when you were perhaps when you were a kid, actually, uh, was was being a writer something that you wanted wanted to be? Was that a was it was that a an ambition? Did you have a sense of if if it was what that would what that would mean? Did you have models for what what a, a writer would be? Yeah, I had. By the time I was at university, I was very clear that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, and I wanted to uh, be a correspondent and then turn that into fiction in due course. Oh, really? And um, I think uh, Gandhi was nineteen eighty or eighty one. There was an American journalist who was apparently very useful to Gandhi. Um, by you know reporting him sympathetically from the beginning, and I remember seeing in the film Gandhi this journalist uh, uh, phoning his copy in after a big demonstration and thinking, yeah, that's um, what was it about that that image that appealed? Uh, I think it was uh, the fact of the combination of two things. One is uh, writing, uh, which I've always enjoyed, and the other is writing about something that seems to matter um, a lot. I remember 1973 coming back from... I went to school in Aberdeen and coming back from the public baths in Aberdeen and going back to the school, uh, someone had a copy of the Daily Telegraph and on the front page was the photograph of Salvador Allende on the balcony of the presidential palace with his helmet and his machine gun. And I thought, ah, oh, just to be there, to see that, to describe it would be... And I was about 16 then, so... Um, yeah, that was always an aspiration. And I think the two parts of it, on the one hand, I did like the idea of being the guy on the telephone who was, you know, shouting down the line something important had happened. And the other was, um, I forget what the quote is from Wordsworth about um, drama recollected in tranquility. Or, emotion, yeah, emotion yeah, recollected. Yeah. Um, where you have an opportunity to take that and kind of open it up and see what it meant and then do something with it that lasts longer than a newspaper piece. 
was there a was there a particular book or a particular writer that made you excited to, to want to obviously as a schoolboy um, I would say uh, for whom the bell tolls and so on I mean that would I think inevitably be one of the influences I would say I probably uh, have not read nearly as much fiction as I should have and have read lots and lots of popular histories mm. of the kinds of conflict that I think are interesting. It really comes as a surprise to me that I've written 11 novels and I think 8 of the 11 are about conflict and I do not think that the conflict itself is what interests me. I'm not, you know, the... Uh, Discovery Channel and uh, the History Channel they have whole programs devoted to tanks and mm. planes and things I really I cannot find myself remotely interested in those things uh, I am kind of interested in the fact that a basic change in the way that rifles were designed between 1860 and 1865 effectively changed the result mm. of the American Civil War That I, the, what these inventions have done historically probably is interesting but I'm not interested in conflict and I'm not interested in any kind of you know glorification of violence um, but I do find that there are elements in conflict that seem to me to be illustrated and that illustration can be useful in terms of non-conflict and in terms of peace. You have in, 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 in this novel a, a moment where what seemed to be a tiny window of, of time becomes even tinier and suddenly all of the interests of the various characters are sort of funneled into this kind of moment. They have to get this little boy out by, I think it's by midnight or this, the, the yes. last play. Yeah. Or, yeah. Everything's on the line, people's lives but also relationships. Uh, you have an intensification of things that uh, exist in different circumstances but you see them in a much clearer light in conflict. There's no doubt about that. It just occurs to me, because you were asking about influences, I was also, I suppose like everybody else of my generation, you know, influenced by, uh, for example, um, Yeats' view of 1916 and mm. the, the way in which he uh, took something that was, in military terms, insignificant, in human terms, quite ugly and bloody, uh, in revisionist historical terms, probably entirely unnecessary and not particularly glorious. And he turned that into this terrible beauty, which was enormously potent. Now, 40 years later, I think, actually, I do not think that was, in the end, a profoundly positive way of looking at that conflict. Having said that, he nonetheless took the conflict and from that created something which resonates, which we can recognise and that would seem to me to be where uh, creatively you can do something with conflict But it's not the only kind of novel that you've written, you seem to have tried, tried your hand at this Comedies, historical novels. Yeah, yeah. I find it quite difficult to write comic novel, and I admire people who can. I can see that that's not easy. I've written several thrillers, and those have been an attempt to take the places where I've worked and set something interesting. Usually, they involve a journalist because that's what I've done. So. Uh, I can do the experience, I think, fairly um, realistically. 
I've uh, published a novel set during the Greek Civil War, which obviously I didn't cover since I'm not <laughs> old enough. One of the things that attracted me about that, and I think 100 years from now, the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina might come into the same category, is everyone remembers the Spanish Civil War, but the Greek Civil War, which was 10 years later, is not really universally known by most people outside Greece. And yet, if you were in that war, it was just as realistic for mm. you. You didn't say to yourself, well, it's not a very important war, nobody mm. will remember it. Um, and it seems to me to almost make it more poignant that people experienced all those mm. things and it never really, it was a blip on the sort of global consciousness. Um, but that too looked at the experience of people who did not choose to be in a conflict but found themselves in it and how they behaved. And one of the things there in the Greek novel that I was looking at was when people, when we read about collaborators, for example, we kind of tucked and say, ah, oh, gosh, you know, the resistance, they were the real heroes. And yet people would collaborate for reasons that at the time they will never, ever be able to know whether it was from fear and cowardice or whether it was from a, a civic duty, a sense of obligation, some sort of uh, service to other people. And it's a complex thing. And, and people behave in ways which, if you're not in that situation, it's kind of easy to judge. And actually, in The Longest Winter, I try and look at the way people are behaving mm. and not just say goodies and baddies, because very often people would behave in ways which when you look from the outside you can point a finger accusingly uh. but on the inside these are these are um, moral conundrums that are very difficult to resolve yes we like those sort of moral certainties of you know that here, yeah. here's how I would have acted but we can't yeah. we can't and I suppose conflict can con- get, concentrate that too can't it that sense that we find out things about ourselves under that kind of pressure and maybe it's things that we don't may not <laughs> Particularly yeah. like about ourselves. Yeah, there was a, um, a part of the narrative of Sarajevo involves the city's gangsters who famously, on two or three occasions, held the line and prevented the larger parts of the city uh, being taken by the people who were uh, besieging it. And Increasingly, that part of the narrative has been chipped away to see a great deal of criminality and not that much, you know, um, uh, altruistic uh, patriotism. But you still had, and you still have today, but especially then, you had very respectable people who would never have had anything to do with organised crime kind of saying, well, you know... Good on them. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you could see that. Of course they would say that. And, they, you know, if I had been in the same situation, I would have said that. They had basically thought, well, if it hadn't been for those people, I would not still be in my apartment and I would have had to have run away or had my throat cut or whatever. And that's something which I always found interesting was the point at which you... You, you make these uh, grey areas because as soon as you do you're in, in difficulty because then things will be done and you mm. will not be able to brush them under the carpet they will be really horrible and you kind of feel as if you've been, you've been uh, not contaminated but tainted by that um, so yeah, I think there are those things in looking at conflict that you don't you, you see where the human spirit rises up and it's tremendously impressive but you also see the horrible moral 
dilemma that people very often don't resolve in a particularly impressive way. Is there a, um, a, some sort of fundamental restlessness in you to, to, to go to, partly to want to be a writer, something to explore those kinds of impulses in human nature, but also to want to to travel as as widely as, as, as you had, um, as, sorry, as you have? I think Definitely, and I, I should really say that I'm not a very good traveller. Okay. Absolutely, uh, and I am ashamed to say that having lived for years in Japan, in Spain, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, my linguistic capacity is painfully limited, um, and I'm not proud of that. Uh, I think there are different ways of getting under the skin of a, a society. But having said that, I would just love to be a better language student. I am sympathetic to the societies that I've tried to understand. But um, I really am not particularly a good traveller. I think the restlessness definitely comes from uh, always having seen my real job as being a writer and whatever else I was doing as... Um, uh, what was necessary at the, the time um, and I think uh, I always imagined how it would be to be in another country and uh, and describe experiences there I think possibly one of the things I always used to be conscious of I remember coming from Tokyo and getting the tube from Heathrow once and there were two girls opposite and they were really you know speaking in a very strong London accent and I realised I was absolutely listening to everything they were talking about. You know, this guy that, that one of them had met last night and why she wasn't going to go out with him again and so on and so forth. And it occurred to me that if I'd been sitting, as I had been 12 hours earlier, on the tube in Tokyo, the two girls opposite talking would just have been music. And my imagination would have been away somewhere else. I would not have been, you know, plugged into this conversation as I was. But of course, because I could understand everything they were saying, I was just uh, listening to this... And in a way, I think being in other countries, and possibly this is something to do with not speaking the language, um, you are really adrift, and mm. therefore you can be quite lateral. You're not absolutely focused on this. Everything is music and colour. Uh, even in, in Tokyo, uh, even the script is different. So you're not even distracted by the meaning of um, signs in the street, which is quite liberating in a mm. way. If you're, if you're the to some extent, a perpetual outsider, whether you're in Singapore or China, or is writing a way to then connect to find some find some way in, some way through, perhaps that feeling of absolutely. And I think um, I think a privileged outsider is probably a good description. You have the opportunity to soak up as much as you possibly can, learn a great deal about the situation, about the people, and about the country. Um, but you are at one remove and you are looking um, uh, from this privileged position I remember in uh, 1991 when I was in Dubrovnik it was the first time for years that I'd been a journalist where I wasn't visibly different and when I was covering um, riots in Korea for example I remember uh, having my gas mask on and being in a situation where the tear gas had turned and I took it off and as soon as I was visibly a foreigner I was able to walk from the student side to the police side and back again because they don't, you know, he's he's not part of our particular confrontation. We can visibly see he's not part, yeah. so what's the point of, you know... So you had that that uh, privileged access, I think, which was um, probably gave you an opportunity to see things um, which might have been harder for 
for a journalist, for example, from, from the country that you were covering? Uh, <laughs> what are your memories of opinion? Were you actually at the Tiananmen Square? Yeah, yeah. I was there when the, um, the soldiers came out of the Great Hall of the People and assembled on one side of the square. Did you go out because you knew there was tension coming? Were you in China? No, I was in uh, Tokyo, right. and yes, it was clear that uh, that was, you know, it had been dramatic for uh, uh, about six weeks beforehand, and I was actually due to go back to Tokyo uh, that day, and then it was clear, no, this is, all, this is all coming to a head. And I don't speak Chinese, and I really... Um, I mean, I was with other correspondents who were fluent in Chinese and who had studied, you know, Chinese history at SOAS and so on. Um, so my experience of that was very much uh, of an outsider. Um, and again, I mean, maybe that brought something to the experience because mm. all I could tell you was physically what was uh, visible. Again, uh, the, the next morning... Um, the uh, Chang'an Avenue leads from Tiananmen Square and it goes past the uh, Peking Hotel and myself and another correspondent went up onto the roof and we slipped past the sort of security people and just crawled to the very edge of the roof of the hotel where there was a little parapet and we could see into the square and we could see all the tanks that had um, sort of assembled in a straight line and I remember thinking as we were doing that, oh, this is like boys' own, you know, this is like something from a comic. But that's precisely what we were talking about earlier. In a way, I remember that with a certain feeling of uh, discomfort, that is this about me or is this about what we're witnessing here, mm. which seemed at the time to be pivotal in Chinese history. I think it turned out not to be, but at the time it, it seemed like the biggest thing since 1949 mm. when the People's Republic was declared. Um, so that was this odd experience of feeling as if this is exactly what I wanted to do. This is so thrilling. And the other thing of, well, whether or not it's thrilling is neither here nor there because what's happening, what you're actually witnessing is something that's catastrophic mm. and, and uh, tragic. I mean, that tension between being the observer and actually what you're observing may not be a particularly enjoyable thing for the people who are experiencing it.